Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Well, thank you again, Mr. Vet podcast intro man and outro man i wonder if we'll get to meet him one day mark the um the intro man that we spent an exorbitant amount of money um to to give our intro and outro i think we spent um $25 wasn't it or something like that um but he does a very good job every week for us he turns up every week for us to give us that intro and also to give us our outro so welcome to the vet podcast for those of you who are new subscribers um vetgurus.com it's a place to go. Get all our um, contact details there, how to email us or even become a patron of us there and also the show notes. So all the news items and the main items um, will be linked in there as well. Um, Mark, it's been um, – this is a bit of a special one, this one. That, that's a bit of a pre-recorded one. That, um, um, But I'll tell you what, I have been up to um, not much over the last day or so. We've actually had some decent weather here, Mark, so it's good to see the weather's a bit up and down here in Melbourne. And I had a had a, had a visitor over, um, a colleague of mine um, over from upstate New York, um, and he was laughing, saying the temperature was exactly the same um, in upstate New York um, as it was here yesterday. It was 31 degrees, um, but I was talking about 31 degrees Celsius and he was talking about 31 degrees Fahrenheit. So it was slightly different temperature there. So, um, And I think you get some... some Pretty good weather up where you are. Do you ever get snow where you are, Mark, in Newcastle, in New South Wales? It's a it's a good question to ask, Brenda, for two reasons, because I'm looking forward to what uh, everyone is saying is going to be the biggest snow season in Australia for 20 years. Um, and uh, we do. We actually, one of the uh, um, little quirky things about local geography is the uh, hillock which we rather grandly call Mount Sugarloaf, um, which generously gives its name to our animal hospital, um, in 1962 had a firm dusting of snow on its top. It's the lowest point, the lowest elevation in New South Wales that gets that's had snow recorded. So, um, uh, yeah, and closest to the coast. So um, I, I must admit, I since... Uh, 1962 is both the celebration of um, the last snowfall on Mount Sugarloaf and the day, the year of my birth. So, I, well, I didn't have my skis at that time, and I have not <laughs> have not um, slid down Mount Sugarloaf. But um, this being a very cold year, I'm looking forward to the chance. Ah, well, I don't think I don't think we've ever had snow. We've had some pretty amazing hailstorms where it looks like snow because we've ended up with golf ball-sized hail, which has caused a lot of damage um, locally. Um, and fortunately, the I remember the year that happened, our cars were under the carport, so we didn't get the typical hail damage car syndrome that you see, or you know, the sails in the car yards for all these um, new cars that have have hail damage so no but we don't experience the snow certainly where we are anyway but i occasionally get out there and do a little bit of um jumping around in the snow but i am not a snow bunny like you are mark i would last time i went to the snow it was probably 
well, many years ago, probably five or ten years ago. So one day maybe we'll hook up together and we'll go snowing, although I shouldn't say hook up because the, the youngsters of today have a different meaning of hook up than what we think hook up is, don't they? We'll, we'll just get together and maybe do a podcast <laughs> from the snow. That, that, that would be a, a good th- plan, I, I think, reckon. I think that's a I think that's a good idea. So, speaking of podcasts, we better get stuck into what's happening. There's lots of news as usual, Mark, and I think we've got four fairly um, diverse topics here today. And the first one um, is one of your topics that you like to um, discuss a lot. It's a very important one, um, and it's about um, stress and veterinarians. And I did say to you before we um, we started talking that I don't I don't want this um, interest I have in uh, mental well-being for my veterinary colleagues and myself um, to become a bit of a downer or something that um, that becomes a bit of a depressing topic that we return to. And so um, I do, but I do regularly search out the the, um, the articles that might help me to understand it better. And this is one that I'm really interested in, a new study. Uh, I think it was released late, late last year, but it's been published in a number of locations through January and February uh, that was uh, a, uh, conducted in by Merck Animal Health in America in collaboration with the AVMA. Um, and it's very interesting in that uh, its primary finding challenges data from previous studies. So the finding previously was that uh, veterinarians, particularly in the US, uh, were at higher risk for mental illness and suicide than the general population. Whereas this study, uh, this current uh, study, which included um, more than uh, 3,500 AVMA members, um, found that uh U.S. veterinarians, on the whole, were no more likely to suffer from uh, mental illness or its complications than the general population. A little bit of a, a challenging finding. What it did find, though, when you drill down into the statistics, was that veterinarians under 45 years of age and female veterinarians are significantly more likely to experience psychological distress than uh, the general population. So um, I found that uh, to be a fascinating finding, and I wonder whether it represents a genuine um, change from previous studies um, or whether uh, whether it's just drilling down into more detail and looking at um, a broader population and, and those uh, more senior veterinarians are, uh, uh, who are satisfied with their profession who are not dealing with the same uh, um, uh, student debt, um, uh, the other factors that contribute to um, uh, depression, burnout and anxiety, whether they're changing the statistics. Um, but overall, um, it, uh, it's a little bit of a positive one, I suppose, that, um, that first of all, um, on average, veterinary mental health is and well-being is um, comparable to the general population. And secondly, I suppose, just knowing the parts of our profession, the segments that uh, are suffering from um, uh, from problems allows us to focus on them and maybe develop solutions that are more specifically applicable. So I think it's an, uh, a very useful study, Brendan. Yes, and do you have any particular um, training that you do at work regarding that? Uh, 
to your staff or not? Um, yeah, well, what with the key thing, I think that's a very, very good question, Brendan. Um, do we do any? I think the key thing for us at, uh, at Sugarloaf is that um, we really want to. Uh, one of the things I find with our new graduates or recent graduates is that they're really zealous. They're, they're absolutely committed to, um, to being the best they can be. They want to be the best at, um, you know, the medicine and surgery, the practice of veterinary science. They want the best for their clients and patients. And that often that, uh, you know, the, the way that money comes into that um, is a conflict for them. And I think just having other parts of their life, making sure that they are not at work for very, very long hours, that they do have some downtime. Um, and it is hard to organise. All of us that are in the profession know that um, it's the type of profession that saps, private practice saps a big part of our, um, our life into it. Um, but I think um, encouraging them to take time off and make sure that they, you know, work the hours that they're allotted and, and not physically kick them out but encourage them to um, take the time that they're not supposed to be at work to um, to work on other things, sport, bushwalking, relationships and uh, make sure that, um, that their life is balanced. Yes. The reason why I asked is I, I, every time you talk about an article such as this, I think, gee, am I doing enough to the staff, um, vets and nurses as well, or technicians. And I th I'd expect that we'd have similar concerns with the statistics if they, if they did a similar survey for the veterinary technicians or nurses as well as, as this one. And personally, I always think it's, it's, it's good every, every week or every now and again saying to your staff, are you okay? And have you, uh, are things going okay? Um, not trying to pry into their home life, but, th but, but, but if they're looking stressed to at least reach out to them and say, are you doing okay? Can I help? And that's where those mentoring type programs are fantastic. And as, as, as you know, both of us are involved with the Australian Veterinary Association mentoring program, and, and I think that's a fantastic way of trying to ensure that new graduates are looked after, uh, are looked after, and, and they have somebody independent from the practice they're working in, a colleague that they can contact if they have any concerns with it. But yeah, the other interesting paragraph or note that I saw in that article, Mark, was that it the study also measured how likely veterinarians are to recommend the veterinary profession to others. And I think it follow, followed on directly from, from, from what you were saying. And the results showed that younger veterinarians to be the least likely to do so. While 41% of veterinarians overall would recommend the profession to a friend or family member, only 24% of veterinarians aged 34 or younger would do so. And by contrast, 62% of veterinarians aged 65 or over would recommend the profession, which is interesting because I was out last night to dinner with um, a, a colleague, um, as I mentioned, from, from America that I went through university vet school with and my oldest daughter um, was attended the dinner as well and then the youngest daughter turned up um, at the end of the dinner at the restaurant uh, because she was occupied elsewhere working and the younger one is the um, more science related um, daughter and 
my Mark, my um, colleague, said to um, Sophie, my youngest daughter, um, do you want to be a vet? And I think her parents <laughs> was no. <laughs> so um, I think she's heard too many horror stories from Dad. Having said that, it is remarkable how many how many veterinarians that I know where their um, their their sons or daughters have gone on to become a veterinarian as well. So um, they often do follow in the footsteps of their their parents. Mark. So the next, well, you you were going to say something, I think, then a comment on um, that that particular. Well, no, I, that was a, a, a statistic that caught my eye, and I don't know whether it's um whether. I'd be interested to follow that cohort through and see those ones that are under 25 now, whether they're, when they're over 65, whether their view of the profession has um, changed and how they would um, then recommend it, whether they would recommend it to um, younger people or whether it's a genuine, you know, that cohort has now been permanently turned off our profession I'd be interested to see how that progresses. Yes. The other thing too I was going to quickly mention is that, um, uh, you know, speaking of uh, your wonderful daughters and um, I was thinking of um, my son who has uh, just switched degrees and, um, and he's not also not doing veterinary science despite his interest in science. Um, but he's um, looking at a, a more than $100,000 debt for his university um, career at the moment. and um, And so I can understand how, you know, uh, debts of that magnitude—they—they—they um, they, uh, they really would tell on people, and um, they add a significant anchor to um, a life that—that um, that I can understand how it puts an additional pressure and makes people, feel, you know, more stressed and anxious about where they're going to go and how successful they're going to be. Yes, and I think we were lucky that we went through university here in Australia when it was still free and we came out the other end with our not only somehow managing to pass our veterinary degree uh, but also debt-free and not having any tertiary um, debt um, and, and the, the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to to pay off um, as we work through our life. Yeah, so I think we we're very lucky. Gee, it would be fantastic if that was the case these days but I don't think it's ever going to return to that um, in Australia, that's for sure. So the next news article, Mark, is just a quick couple of quick facts on dingoes um the reason why i pulled this article up and i think it was from where was it from was it from the mother nature no it was from the conversation um and we'll put a link to that in our website is that uh, i remember um, a couple of comments just a couple of supposed myths about dingoes and one was dingoes don't bark and the vast majority of time um that of heard dingoes vocalising they have not been barking but they can bark and um, with the article it talks about um, that they they do bark and it's generally a harsher short bursts of bark um, that they do do but um, you know they're notorious for doing a um, a whining um, type type um, um, noise and I remember when I lived um, close to the zoo um, which, which um, only housed Australasian animals, uh, we had 
probably 10 or 20 dingoes um, in that zoo. And, yeah, regularly once one of the dingoes would start doing a bit of a howl, they would all start up, um, but occasionally you would hear one bark. So that was myth number one, that dingoes don't bark and that they can bark. Um, myth number two in this particular article was the, the myth about um, – the colour of dingoes, um, and the, the general thought is all dingoes are a, are a ginger type um, colour or a tan type colour. And I don't know about you, Mark, but I, I have seen the occasional dingo as a pet in my practice in Victoria where I am. We need to, I think you need to have a special licence to have a dingo as a pet. Um, and I do see an occasional dingo that's brought into my clinic for treatment. Um, do you have, have any dingoes as, no, we as don't. patients? It, it's, a, it's just a, um, a, a sort of, a, I suppose it's a new fashion in New South Wales. There are a number of people who are breeding them. But I think people do need... Um, special licenses and special holding facilities, but um, there are. Uh, it is an increasing trend, but we don't have any at the uh, at where I work. Yeah, well, it's it's um, they're pretty amazing animals. Yeah, I just find them fascinating, and they are. As we'll talk about myth number three, dingoes are not just dogs because they are completely different in the way they behave. Um, but as going back, getting back to the colour, they come in all shapes and colours and there are um, three quarters of the population are the ginger type dingoes, but their coats can also be black, black and tan, black and white, or even a plain white, or I think they call them alpine dim dingoes, Mark, the ones that are really light coloured is sort of the colloquial term for it. I have seen a couple of them as, as pets as well. Um, but having said that, I think there is a fair number of crossbred dogs out there that, that have uh, mated with dingoes, and there is a lot of wild dogs that are part dingo and part um dog um, running around um, in the bush in Australia as well um, and yeah the myth number three was that dingoes are just dogs and that they um, which is a bit of a confusing one because when you read about their comments who um, from the person who wrote this article which was I can't see the name of it um, um, that the, the jury's out I think uh, about um, where dingoes are um, originate from and where they are, um, are did they arrive um, in Australia um, mainland Australia roughly 5,000 years ago and being isolated from other canines and that's where they developed into the subspecies I suppose or um, is it are they a particular hybrid animal um, but um, I think they debate the pros and cons of both with this particular article but um, yeah I, I find them um, the few that I see and, and when I dealt with them in a zoo situation I just found them um, beautiful animals dingoes um, and um, yeah just a couple of fun facts on dingoes Mark that's what um, news item number two was um, and I think you've got a Oh, no, it's another article on birds, isn't it, Mark? Um, article number Surprisingly three. Surprisingly enough, yes. <laughs> it is. Um, and um, it's a oh, this this is a um, a bit of a lighthearted one, and um, and uh, uh, but it actually raises for me a couple of um, uh, really important um, side issues, I suppose. The story itself um, comes from uh, the Mother Nature Network, um, Christian. Co Traneo um, reports on um, on Dora, Nora, and um, Christo, three uh, red-tailed hawks, 
um, who uh, live in um, what part of New York are they there? In Thompson Tompkins Square Park, and um, initially, uh, Christo and Dora had. Uh, um, been together in the park for um, at the last five years, um, and these uh, birds are particularly famous f- as a species um, for their fidelity. Um, they uh, do tend to um, mate for life, and over that five years, um, Dora and Christo had raised ten healthy chicks. Um, and um, this Tompkins Square Park is in New York City's East Village, and um, and and of course, uh, given the separation of uh, humankind from the natural world, um, wherever the natural world pokes its head up close, where people can pay attention, people become in our mood with what's going on, and this is exactly what happened. There's uh, a, uh, a quite considerable. Uh, following, I wouldn't be surprised that we find they have their own Facebook page, though I haven't looked yet. Um, and uh, of course, uh, everyone was um, cherishing the family life that um, uh, Dora and Christo had. But um, Dora developed and had an injury, developed a um, a uh, uh, um, an infection, a serious infection, and in her wing, and um, so she was caught up and transferred to a veterinary hospital for care. Um, but in the meantime, a uh, another hen hawk moved in, and despite um, Dora only being away for a short period of time, um, Christo relatively quickly shifted his attention to Nora. The um, the the uh, the new bird and and surprisingly enough, this raised a whole series of negative emotions in the uh, in the people who are following the story that um, that he would so quickly abandon his uh, uh, long term partner. She's only gone for a little while, and um, and he'd take up with uh, with an uh, with a new hawk at the drop of a hat, um, which I, I sort of I don't know. The behaviour of many people leaves me to. Um, to think that's a bit hypocritical that they would look on another species that did that and um, and uh, <laughs> be, be upset by it. Um, in any case, uh, uh, Dora made a, um, a uh, an outstanding recovery from her infection. Um, she was released, and there was a bit of uh, uh, you know I don't want to anthropomorphise here, but um, I think uh, that um, there was a little bit of. Um, Toing and froing on her return, uh, but um, unfortunately, um, Christo was seen to mate with um, th- his uh, well, the, the Nora, the second uh, bird, shortly after Dora's return. So we'll have to wait for future reports to see how that uh, red-tailed hawk um, three-way tryst eventually pans out. <laughs> yes, and I, and I think one one um, somebody commented this. This was the real hawkwives of the East Village, um, and um, they had a few other puns in there. I think the last line was, "We can only imagine how much colder his old nest must feel when he comes home," um, and that Christo is trying to make things work, visiting Nora at her place whenever he can. Yeah, so yes, it's that whole anthropomorphizing um, bit that um, I find <laughs> quite um, amusing. Um, with, with that sort of article. And speaking of amusing articles, um, ma- articles, Mark, the last one I don't think you have seen before, but one of my 
nurses um, pointed this one out to me and the the scary thing is that I think it's quite true and this is a care sheet for owners Mark it is the husbandry and feeding of veterinarians for new owners and it is very close to the bone I think these um, 10 things to do or to to realize when you have a vet as a as a partner and um, yeah I just found it um, quite interesting and I'll just go through a couple of these and we will have the link to this one um, here and the one that sort of touched um, touched my wife was um, number four which was when your veterinarian gets home from work approach it carefully this is when veterinarians are most likely to bite gauge its mood carefully and and Annie, my wife, um, still very um, commonly mentions to people when I first started my practice that um, I, I think I was particularly stressed out for those first five or ten years and I would get home from work and the last thing I want to do was um, after talking to clients all day and, and coping with the stress of practice management all day would be to have a chat to her and she'd been at home all day with with two very young children and the last thing she wanted to do is 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 not talk to me she wanted to talk to me um so we had opposite um ideals of what would be happening and i'd get home stressed out and i'd walk in the door and say look don't <laughs> talk to me give me five minutes please i just need to sit down and chill out um and i think i just sat in the back room in a chair and just had a, a cold drink just of water and and i would just sit there and just sort of try and de-stress a little bit um um, but yeah, in this particular article, it it, it's, it, it goes into a bit more detail f- um, about that when your veterinarian comes home. If if its eyes are red and puffy, be sure to approach it slowly, holding out a glass of wine. Do not speak until it gives an indication of its current state of mind. If invited or if you deem it safe, um, for example, it's sobbing, um, approach it and embrace it. If your veterinarian seems to be full of snark, wine might work, may work, but stronger spirits may be required. Give it a little time by itself to settle down before approaching. It is important to ignore the content of whatever it says during this time and pay attention only to the tone. None of what it said should be taken personally. This is so true with what used to happen with me when I get home. And um, if your veterinarian seems excited, approach it without hesitation. This is when they are most receptive to petting and belly rubs. Um, be prepared, however, for a very long rapid-fire explanation of something that is gross in, in crop comprehensibly medical or beyond your capability to fix smile and nod or say gosh honey amazing no matter what it says um and number five yeah i I could appreciate veterinarians are as a species have a difficult time getting to sleep and staying asleep i can relate to that other article we had on um on mental health and now that you have your vet own veterinarian Number six, expect <laughs> to bring home some companions, um, which is so true. And I think number 10 applies to what happened last night because we were talking fairly loudly in the restaurant. And number 10 is prepare for public events with your new veterinarian to be uncomfortable until you become used to its peculiar habits it may talk about gross things at meals even in restaurants and even when others can overhear if it is with its own kind expect this phenomenon to increase exponentially it is not unheard of 
for a thrombus of veterinarians, a group of three or more gathered together in an aisle or a hallway to loudly discuss at least three of the following in a two-minute period. Feces, pus, erections, blood, brain tissue, necrotic tumours, penile discharge, gaping wounds and vomit. And I'll tell you what, that was almost exactly what we were discussing in the restaurant as we were having our dinner last night. So, yeah, I found it a, a very good article. The Husbandry and Feeding of Veterinarians for New Owners, Mark. So, recommended ready. That's my that's my um, 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 book review for this week, Mark, um, is that particular article. I think you did have a product review or you wanted to talk about yeah, something that's ex- that, that we would like as a product. Exactly right, um, and that, I, am, I was um, keen to, um, uh, I suppose this is a product review in anticipation. I was keen to um, uh, um, canvas the the usefulness and, um, and I know you've had a look at uh, this particular product um, and its availability overseas. And so I thought... Um, we might talk about it a little bit, and um, and uh, uh, maybe we can convince Siva, who I understand are the people who own the um, the license for this product in France, um, to uh, consider releasing it in Australia. I think it would have a wide market. And the product I'm talking about is um, uh, the appeasement pheromones for rabbits. Um, we, we've uh, had great success using feline and canine appeasement pheromones both in the hospital and, and in our home. Uh, and so uh, I'm a, a very uh, proud advocate for the use of those uh, products in those species. But uh, I've become aware that, um, that uh, the rabbit appeasement pheromone in fact has a little bit um potentially even a longer history so you've done some research on this brendan well as far as i remember and uh, these facts may not be i don't trust them because it's um trusting my memory which is getting increasingly poor over the years but i as far as i know the, this rabbit appeasing pheromone was the first of these appeasing pheromones that that would that was developed and i think the registered trademark name for it is lapazil um and it is um, for, for veterinarians worldwide, I think they all know the DAP, the dog appeasing pheromone, um, which is what you were um, talking about, and also the the um, Feliway is the um, cat appeasing pheromone, which are the ones that are marketed for use in veterinary clinics and for for clients to spray a bit around of the, the in the travel box or in their car when they're taking their animal to and from the veterinarian or going to the the kennels or the cattery. Um, but I think what originally happened is that they developed this rabbit appeasing pheromone was the first one that was was developed because the, the rabbit farming for 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 rabbit meat in in France is is a, a big industry and they have um, and the person who developed the rabbit appeasing pheromone is the same person as and um, I'm pretty sure who, who developed the the DAP and the um, Feedlyway um, pheromone as well, and they've had great success um, and and some very good trials and studies proving that success of the rabbit appeasing pheromone and its use within these um, intensive meat 
um, rabbit meat um, farms where they're raising rabbits to be to be slaughtered for meat in in France um, for human consumption and using the the pheromone or, or spraying them. And I think you you can talk a little bit more about how how um, how the, they're using very big um, um, they're using it in bulk it's basically being infused or or diffused across the whole um, farms aren't they mark or, or the or the um, the, the um, areas where the rabbits are kept uh, it increases the the production of those rabbits they, they they appear to be more relaxed and they grow quicker and put on muscle <laughs> mass um, quicker until they're slaughtered um, which is probably not much fun for the rabbit obviously but um, they, um, they have found that they have increased production when using these um, rabbit pheromones so I, I think you've done a little bit of um, um, checking on it is, the actual I product have had itself. a look at that uh, correct, the right? product I know it's used um, in France where it's registered I know that um, uh, I wouldn't know how this happens, but I know it has turned up at a number of um, uh, British um, uh, uh, rabbit farms. And there is, as you say, good research that suggests uh, feed conversion ratios and uh, uh, the degree of um, uh, uh, aggressive behaviour between rabbits as measured by the um, damage to the the, uh, carcasses are significantly reduced in the rabbits that uh, the products used in, and um, and it's the only one of those products I think that there is you know um, measurable external um, uh, reproducible scientific evidence that it causes changes in um, in uh, in demeanour and anxiety levels. Um, I think, from my understanding, the products. Uh, sold as a um, as a cream as a gel, um, and it's sold in buckets. And my understanding is that um, the products wiped onto various surfaces near the rabbits um, to slowly release the the uh, pheromone over time. Um, and I, I I I just I can uh, certainly my understanding of my rabbit clients who are so sensitive to um, anything that um, that stresses their rabbits uh, and the fact that often those there, there would certainly be cases where we've had rabbits visit the hospital and uh, and um, and that visit has been a trigger for an episode of gut stasis um, and so anything that limits the chance that that sort of event is going to happen and that our clients have to go through uh, a stressful uh, series of events with their rabbit, I think would be something um, we'd find a ready market for in Australia. So so I don't know whether we petition SIBA or um, ask them to run some trials in Australia, but I think this is a product that uh, we need to get here, Brendan. Oh, sorry, I turned my microphone off there for a second. Yes, I think it is something that it would be of great benefit to our pet rabbits that are out there. So maybe Siva are listening. Otherwise, I think we need to contact them, Mark, don't we? We need to talk to the technical veterinarian. And any listeners who um, have any more information on this in, in any part of the world, please contact us and with your experiences of it and we can let all our other listeners know um, maybe it already is being used um, in the pet rabbit situation in other countries, Mark. Um, well, let's jump to our topic of the week 
and it is a bit of a dry topic, but I think it's an important one, and it's back on the theme that we have ongoing, which is zoonoses, um, so diseases transmitted to humans from animals, and you've had some particular experiences with this um, zoonotic disease, Mark, and that is Q fever or query fever is the um, full name of it, isn't it, or the correct term for this particular um, zoonotic disease. So do you want to introduce uh, the, this particular um, zoonotic disease and, and talk definitely, about any experiences? Definitely, um, I, I'm very fortunate. Don't take me the wrong way. I'm very fortunate that... Um, that I definitely had have uh, have had experience, uh, as I understand it, almost all veterinarians now uh, um, tested at university, and um, and if they uh, do not record a significant teeter that indicates they have been exposed, then they're vaccinated. And um, and I have had my teeter done and have been exposed, so have not been vaccinated. Uh, um, so I definitely have personal contact with the organism, but fortunately I haven't um, suffered the disease. Um, so, uh, but more importantly, there's two other aspects, I suppose, that uh, make it important to me. The first one is that um, that there have been practices in New South Wales where um, uh staff have come down with Q fever and the nature of uh, uh, workplace safety legislation makes uh, makes this situation a very, very stressful one involved for the uh, veterinarians and um, practice owners involved. And so I think it's um, really important that we raise awareness um, uh, so that there's less chance that this can be something that stresses uh, people in veterinary practice out in the future, um, and then, and as a consequence of um, those sorts of things, there has been a little bit of, particularly over the last um, uh, last few months, um, uh, safe workers uh, been spreading information uh, um, amongst uh, you know all the people that are potentially at risk from Q fever. Um, so. Uh, well, probably just before we talk about that, um, uh, it's probably worth just quickly mentioning that it's a um, the introductory stuff, an infectious disease um, caused by a bacteria, Coxiella burnettii, um, and this organism is found in large concentrations in the tissues of infected animals, and particularly um, uh, fluids. Birth fluids seem to be one of the um, the real risk areas for high concentrations of the organism. Um, and in humans, um, uh, it's a, a disease that um, initially probably causes for most people a, uh, um, you know, not like many of these diseases, uh, um, causes fevers, chills, like a severe cold, uh, profuse sweating, severe headaches, uh, coughing, fatigue, and muscle pain. And typically untreated and last in most people um, for one to six weeks and uh, affected patients have lifelong immunity thereafter, just as I uh, hopefully um, uh, um, developed uh, from the uh, non-clinical infection I must have had. But there is a form of of the disease, uh, so-called chronic Q fever, which can lead to complications, um, severe life-threatening complications such as endocarditis and 
post-QFEVUS fatigue syndrome. Um, and even some people have developed uh, hepatitis and osteitis syndrome uh, complications. So it is a very, very serious disease, uh, life-threatening in some situations, um, and something that everyone should do something about. Um, probably the uh, main uh, message that I'd uh, that I'd pass on to, you know, at our, for example, at our hospital, all our vets, either through the university program uh, or their previous exposure, all demonstrate at the moment significant teeters and are effectively protected. And, and as part of our responsibility to work safe, uh, to safe work New South Wales, we've uh, um, recorded those uh, teeters and we have, um, you know, demonstration that all the vets who work with us um, uh, are vaccinated or protected. Um, but it's much more difficult to get that for our support staff, for our nursing staff. Um, and we have uh, started a, a program of insisting that our support staff um, discuss that with their their GPs and um, and get tested, and if they are not protected, make sure that they get protected. Um, and um, and so I think uh, the recent events at veterinary hospitals, where a number of veterinary nurses were uh, did come down with this disease, um, and the stress of having to deal with um, the uh, safe work people. Not that they're uh, picking on anyone, but just that that uh, ad government administration of um, of controlling disease in the workplace, uh, it's a particularly stressful thing for the veterinarians who have to deal with it. So I think it's a good thing for us to raise awareness about, Brendan. Yes, and you've certainly raised my awareness of it because I, I think I've um, we don't have any formal protocols for it at my practice and I don't know whether there is any. I, I'm just flicking through some of the websites on, on Q fever here in Australia and I think there is a requirement under um, the workplace um, um, laws or legislation that you need to ensure that your at least professional the veterinarian staff um, are aware of the fact that they may have been exposed to q fever and if they haven't they need to be vaccinated so it's something i need to get on to because i don't think we've had any formal um, um, notification of this by any of the um, veterinary groups in in our state about how important it is to to ensure that you're doing testing or at least being aware of it within clinics so i think it's something I will take up with our local um, Victorian veterinary um, group so, so if we can publish it a bit more um, and make people more aware of it. Um, I have not had my teeters um, taken for Q fever, Mark, so I, it is something Good I have plan. to get done. Well, there's one quick other thing I'd mention GP. about it. Um, one of the, I mentioned uh, before how... Um, uh, how uh, Birth fluids tend to be a, a, a real um, potential risk factor, and um, and certainly there's a, a, a well recognised danger for abattoir workers or uh, people who might be working in the livestock industry who are associated with um, uh, animals, particularly uh, placental or birth fluids. Um, and um, drinking unpasteurized milk, um, mainly from ruminants, uh, would be the focus of, uh, of um, you know most of the literature. Uh, but interestingly enough, the case in New South Wales where 
um, which uh, really brought this to my attention, um, was a case where a small animal practice known for, um, for, for being, you know, working with breeders um, was doing um, some cesarean work. And, uh, and I, I, this is a, um, many of our young veterinarians may be surprised to learn this, but um, some of us older veterinarians have been known to, um, to give mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to newly born uh uh, pups or kittens that are not breathing um, and uh, try and inflate their lungs that way uh, to stimulate that first reflex breath. Um, and this was identified as the um, as the um, situation that led to the infection of the nursing staff. They had um, attempted to resuscitate um, some, uh, um, I'm pretty sure it was young pups, same as before, all disclaimers, this is going from Brendan and my memory and um, as we age that can be a bit faulty, but um, the, it was uh, um, pups or kittens and uh, and um, not only the staff but um, the owner came down with Q fever as well and, um, and there was a lot of stress on the practitioner who ran the practice um, after all that uh, after it was all figured out how that came about. So not just the usual run of um, abattoir workers and people who work with offal, but uh, even um, those of us who work with small animals, uh, dog and cat breeders, um, agricultural and college staff, uh, agricultural college staff and students, people who work with wildlife, all these people are relatively high risk when it comes to Q fever. Mm. I I think the best site, and I'm just looking at a few of these links, the best site for those in Australia is the Australian Q Fever Register. It has some great FAQs on there. The website is qfever, qfever.org, um, and that includes a link to the register. So you're not, you should be on that register then, Mark, if you've been tested and you can ring up the Q Fever register and, and just ensure whether or not you have been tested. You are probably listed as being tested and um, that you tested positive and you didn't need the vaccination. So, yeah, Q Fever. Um, hence, for those of you who listeners who have looked at the title for the webcast this week, it, um, it is a subtle play on Q fever and it, it, with an Australian um, little flavour there, which um, will let you try and find out yourself what it means. Um, for those of you who don't know what this particular um, little saying is, because the title of this um, podcast is POQ, and for the Australians um, who are listening will realise what that um, um, means. Um, I'll leave it to um, others to look up uh, on the internet to to see what POQ means um, in Australian slang dictionary. Um, there was one other little um, zoonotic um, disease that we were going to touch on again. I know we have mentioned it before, Mark, before we finish, and that was um, the whole um, the whole salmonellosis and reptiles because that's a, a very common one that we're dealing with, both with the public and with our with our um, with our staff as well, and um, 
the take-home message that I give to my my staff and and definitely the clients as well is that we assume that all all reptiles are, have salmonella in or on their their, their 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 bodies and that we should be very careful about potentially con- contracting salmonellosis um, and we abide by the recommendations that were made. Um, I think with one of the British um, veterinary groups at one stage originally made it, but it's the policy of the Amphibian Reptilian Veterinarians Association, and that is no no person with a poor immune system or any child under the age of five, I think, uh, should not have a reptile as a pet. Because as you know, Mark, we've had young children at, 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 um, a few years ago and what do young kids tend to do, toddlers? They like to put things in their mouth to explore the environment. So if they get to hold on to their little turtle or their snake or their lizard, they tend to start licking those animals or even put in, trying to put that turtle inside their mouth. And it's amazing how many thousands of people um, worldwide have been reported to be contracting salmonellosis from reptiles by, by putting or licking or touching or trying to, to eat that, that, that reptile. And um, a lot of them are young, immature people, young juvenile people, toddlers who um, can get very sick from it. So I think that's the other shout-out we wanted to do about salmonellosis. Um, and and helping that and yeah i just i just laugh all the time but i shouldn't be laughing when i get clients that are dropping off their reptiles and um they're they're worried about their reptiles that are being left at our clinic for surgery and they i see them out the front in the waiting room and there they are kissing their reptile um saying goodbye to them for the day hoping that they'll see their reptile tonight or tomorrow after the surgery um ノーレルオーブレイクナイナイヘッドワンスアゲンプレスノーコンタクトウィッドウィンセルマノレスス。イシュウアムレンウィクマイオルサンウィスアムホスピタライズフォーシュートワイルドウィディディアンインベスティ
we can help people decrease them is a, a useful thing. And particularly I'd like to uh, emphasise that um, that those support staff who work in veterinary hospitals, uh, they're just as important as the veterinarians um, and uh, they may not be aware of this and uh, they should get themselves tested and make sure they're well protected. And that leads perfectly into one of your favourite quotes, Mark, from <laughs> Spider-Man. Do you know that quote that you always state into me? With great power comes great responsibility. Uh, and you have frequently quoted that. And I think that's a, a fitting finish to this particular podcast. And thank you for listening. And we will talk to you all next week. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time